I want to begin this morning by spending a few moments in considering of this. What is it that we have already needed today and will need for us to make it through the day? Prior to the beginning of this day, you needed sleep. We needed air to breathe. We needed our hearts to pump our life's blood through our bodies. We needed our internal organs to function. We needed food and drink. We needed time to prepare ourselves. So also then clothing and a place for our clothing to be kept a house, a dwelling place. We needed propulsion in some form to bring us here. We needed oncoming traffic to stay in their lane. And for many, we needed to check our phones. We needed to be able to read, so we needed vision. We needed to hear. We needed to speak. We needed to understand what others were saying to us. There are some who are tired, some who are bored, some who are neither, some who are hopeful, and perhaps now some who are wondering, when am I going to stop? Oh yes, and we also need gravity. And on a day like this, in this place, we feel like we need some air conditioning. We needed to bathe last night because it was, after all, Saturday night. We needed to brush our teeth this morning, fix our hair, well, some of us. And on and on and on. And more likely before this day is over, we may be surprised. We may be delighted. We may be angered. We may be frustrated. But before long, we also will become hungry. Now for a moment, as we have considered ourselves, Consider God. Which of these will he experience today? And the answer is none. None. The big reason for this is, of course, what we read in our confession, pulled from the word of God, that God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, without parts, without passions. And something we looked at on a Sunday afternoon some weeks ago, God is simple then. That is, he is without parts. And what we will look at today is connected to this because God is independent. Or to put it another way, God is self-sufficient. 
God is of himself, that is from himself. He was never brought into being. He has always existed. And his existence is from himself and no other. He has no defect because he is not made of anything. He cannot increase because he has no beginning. He was before all things. And so having existed up before all things, there is nothing that he needs. You understand, I hope, that before creation, God was perfect. He didn't need to create. He was perfect. He was perfect in happiness. There was not a thing that he need, needed before he created. Now, as we think about this, I want to stay with the book of Job. And first place we'll go to is in chapter 22. In chapter 22, as Eliphaz is, is speaking to Job, you see, the, the, those who spoke to Job, even of the, the three, the spoke to him first, uh, there was some wisdom and truth to the things that they were saying. They weren't completely off the wall. A lot of times they were completely off on their application in regard to Job. But in Job 22, and in verse 2, he says this to Job, Can a man be profitable to God? Though he who is wise may be profitable to himself, but is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Can a man be profitable to God? Is there anything man can give to God to make him better? Someone who is wise can indeed profit themselves. But can God be benefited by any of us? I think there are some who might be tempted to say, yes, yes, God can be benefited by us. So if you think somewhere in the back of your mind, even if that answer came up among any of you here today, if that answer is yes, then we have to ask the next question then. If you can be a benefit to God, the question is how? How? How can you be of benefit to God? What deficiency is there in God that you can make up? If we can benefit him, it means of necessity there's something lacking in him. People take different kinds of supplements. It's a multi-billion dollar industry in our country. Why do they take the supplements? Well, because it's... There's something lacking, some level, some mineral, some vitamin that's lacking. And so we take the supplement to build it up. What, are we, what, what supplement does God need? Note the question in verse 5 that he asks. 
is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? Does that change God? Is God made better by any of our righteousness? Does he gain by our attempts at sinlessness? Now, of course, we must keep in mind he's not saying it's useless for us to shoot for righteousness. But he's making it clear that God is not made better by our righteousness. We are. He's perfect in righteousness, so he doesn't need anything added to his righteousness. And your sin doesn't diminish God one bit. There's nothing we can do to diminish or improve God. If we could, then we would be a cause of change upon God. And yet God is unchangeable. Because he has to be to be God. Because if something can change him, guess what? That has power over him. And therefore he's not the supreme being anymore. So Eliphaz asked these rhetorical questions, knowing that there was a, a no. And it was based upon the fact that Job, in his statements, some of his statements said that he wished he could have an audience with God and he would explain his case to him, suggesting that God was not fully aware or completely understood. We saw some of that last week, but we'll look at it again in in chapter 23, I believe it was. In verse 4. Starts off verse 3. Oh, that I, I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No. But he would take note of me. What's he saying? He's saying, well, you know, if I could get in front of God and have an audience with him, I could help him judge the situation. I could give him some help in, in seeing what's going on here. Chapter 31 and verse 33, he said, If I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and, and dreaded the contempt of family so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that the prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. And like a prince, I would approach him. Again, I would come to the place where I would counsel him. I would show him what's in the book. I would tell him about my righteous steps. And in chapter 35, in verses 6 and 7, Elihu has picked up on that same theme. 
of where Job is trying to say that he, he's questioning God in some ways, that, that God needs some help for his, for his justice to be right. And so in chapter 35, verse 6, Elihu says, If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Do we think about that from time to time? Is it possible that sometimes in our mind we say, well, today I can make God happy. He's going to smile upon my righteousness and and it's going to be a better day for God because it's going to be a good day for me. What do you give him? What does he receive from your hand? These bozos on satellite TV that claim to be preachers who actually have the nerve to say that scripture tells us that when you, you give to God you're lending to him have they not read the Bible everything is his how can you give him if you lend to him what does it mean that there's some kind of shortage there so he needs you to give to him, and once you give to him, he'll, well, he'll give you with, back with interest. That's not scripture. That's straight out of the devil's tongue for greedy little people who think, if I give money here, I'll get something back. If that's the way your giving attitude is, then you best keep your money in your pocket because you think you're going to manipulate God by giving to him. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. That's not scripture. The validity of this line of questioning is endorsed by God himself. For when we turn to chapter 41, in chapter 41, verse 11, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. What does that leave off? Everything means everything. Everything under heaven is mine. Who has preceded me? that I should pay him. Everything under the heaven is mine. That is, everything that is not God is his creation, is created. Everything that is not God. Who has come before me? No one. In essence, who has given something to him 
so that now he's indebted to them. We cannot give God anything. There's nothing we can give him because there's nothing that he doesn't already have. So in Psalm 50, as we were singing earlier and as we had read, notice what he says in verse 9. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills, and you know this is somewhat poetic language. It's not like when you come to the thousand and first hills, those aren't his cows anymore. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains. And the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And in return, you shall glorify me. Everything under the heaven is mine. There's nothing we can give him. God doesn't need us, but we for sure need him. On the History Channel, there's this show that's been on. I think it finished another season called Alone. And it's been on the TV in our house a few times. These people are taken and put in these very remote places. Well, they... are supposed to show their self-sufficiency and ability to survive in, in harsh climates for a period of time. And I think the, uh, the reward this, this year was, I think, around $500,000, something like that. But they're going to show their self-sufficiency as they are, are scattered about in these places. But what do they arrive with? Well, they arrive with supplies, with tools, with clothing, with footwear, to, build, uh, to give, make them able to do what? Well, they've got a bow and arrow and various other things like that. To do what? So they can hunt. Well, you might say that's self-sufficiency. Yeah, but who, who created the animals? Who created the squirrels, the grouse, the various other things? And it's interesting as you watch, as time goes on, many of the people quit tap out, as they say, because of loneliness. All by themselves. They get tired of talking to the camera, and frankly, we get tired of, of hearing them talk to the camera. See, we need other people, whether we own up to it or not. We need other people. But God does not. Note the strong truth that Isaiah, Isaiah gives us in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 and verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? 
measured the heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. For who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him in his presence are as nothing. They are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Notice the questions. Who was it that taught God? Who was it that was his counselor? Who instructed him? Who showed him the paths of justice, of knowledge, and understanding? Verse 25 is particularly. To whom will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. That passage there resonated in the heart and the mind of the Apostle Paul. So when it came to Romans 11 and verse 33, Romans 11 verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it should be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. You see, Paul considers all this. And what does he do? He says, well, I wanted to have a part in this. But instead, he sees the independence of the beauty, the power of God, and he breaks out in a benediction. Breaks out in praise of the great power and glory of God. Praise and adoration. See, the independence of God is not a topic to despise or to reject. The wisdom and knowledge of God, the unsearchable judgments, his ways that are past finding out, the mind of the Lord who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that he should repay? And then finally, that, that thing that puts it all together, that unifying verse for of him, through him, and to him are all things. Again, 
Anything that is not God is his creation. Note what Paul tells the Athenians, the men of Athens, the great men of, of learning of their time in Acts chapter 17. In verse 20, you know that verse 21 there, it tells us for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear something new. So what does Paul do? Well, he explains to them uh, about the unknown God that they had made a statue to. In verse 24, he said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life all to life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. And then, here we go. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring we are his creation in him we live and move and we have our being in just a few minutes we'll be most of us will be over in the other building Maybe over there there'll be a, a crock pot full of soup or something like that. And it'll look really like it's almost going to overflow. And each time you dip something out of there, what happens? The level goes down. And then it goes down. And then it goes down. It never fills back up on itself. But every time we take something from it, it goes through a period of depletion until finally it's gone. But when God gives, there's no depletion. As we were talking about, you know, sometimes I think people think about, well, you know, he's talking about God's infinity the other night, and, and really that's too much to think about. Really, is it? The fact is, we need to know about the infinity of God, that the fact that he can give because he has infinite resources, that you can never drain anything from God. You can't take away his happiness, it's infinite. You can't take away his justice, it's infinite. You can't take away his mercy. If he's mercy to 300 billion people, guess what? He still has the same level of mercy. The well never runs dry. You can't refill infinity. It's important for us to know and understand. He, we cannot subtract from his infinite goodness. We cannot add to it. And so it's true for his infinite joy and his infinite happiness. Some of you who may have a few summers on yourselves 
might remember years ago there was a product called Shake and Bake. Seasoned coating mix. And in the commercial, there's a mother fixed the fried chicken. Ah, the good old days. And, and the husband comes in and says, oh, what's this? And the kid's child says, it's Shake and Bake and I helped. Some of us, there's this desire to be like the kid. God did this and I helped. If we turn to Psalm 18. Sorry, Pastor, but you're over your limit for scriptural references. Oh well. Psalm 18 in, in verse 25. God says, it says, of God, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will bring, you will save the humble people, but you will bring down the haughty looks. He never runs out. These things are just the canvas on which God's unchanging and unacquired virtues are displayed. We don't make God angry about sin. That's part of his nature. It's already there. And he's not, it's not because you sin today that he said, why did he do that? I didn't know he was going to do that. Of course he knew that. And it is part of God's virtue and who he is to be angry with sin. But your sin didn't change him and cause him to be angry. Because God is who he is, he will never change. And so that brings us down to then, all right, we've got the, the gist perhaps, but Where does, it, where does it hit home? Well, the good news is this, that through Christ, through our union with Christ, all that God is and has is on our side. It, it works for us. You see, there is no blessing that can come from a, a needy God. If God needs, then, then he's, he's limited in what he can do for blessing us because, well, he needs something in return. How can God be God and be full of need at the same time? How can he be supreme if he's constantly being acted upon by his creation? And how can Christ be our Savior if in order to be our Savior, he needs some fashion of help from us? Jesus completely saves. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. You realize that even when he was nailed to a cross, he saved a man. 
at a point where everyone would have thought he can't do anything but die. He saves a wretched sinner. Who helped Jesus on the cross? Did any of the disciples come and say, let, let me push up on your feet so you can breathe a little better. Let me, let me doctor your wounds while you're up there. Let me pour some cold water over you to make it easier. Did any of them come and help him? No, no, because he must be our Savior. Alone, on the cross by himself, and his Perfect obedience as he goes through on his earthly ministry through that 33, 34 years of life on earth. Perfect obedience, not for himself, but for us. For us, why? Because we can't achieve that. But he can. Righteousness is infinite for him. And so he can give us a perfect righteousness. As strange as it might sound to those on the airwaves and on television, there's never been an assistant savior position. Jesus paid it all because he had all to give. Let's stand together for prayer.